Welcome to the Coaching Through Chaos podcast, helping you conquer the chaos in your life. Your host is licensed marriage and family therapist, Dr. Colleen Mullen. Dr. Colleen has been doing what she does for almost two decades. She's a private practice owner, a chaostician, a magazine columnist, a best-selling author, and her work or writing has been featured on countless websites. Listen in as she brings you experts in the psychology of life. They may be New York Times bestsellers, key players in their professions, or people who have overcome tremendous obstacles in life and are here to share their story to help you live your best life. Let's get to it. Stay tuned for our next chaos-crushing guest. Here is your host, Dr. Colleen Mullen. Hey everyone, Dr. Colleen here, and I'm so glad to have you join me for this very personal episode. This interview is quite possibly one of the most personal I'll ever do publicly, and that it is the first time I've really let anyone dive in with me around my personal connection to the subject of suicide. For those of you who follow me on Facebook or Twitter, you may already know that my life was devastated about 10 years ago by my baby brother's suicide. Scott was 28 when he died, so although not a baby to anyone else, he was certainly and always will be my baby brother, and my life was changed on July 1st, 2007 in ways that I could not have imagined. This episode is sort of a two-way interview. My guest is Dr. Jonathan Singer, a licensed clinical social worker. Jonathan is a professor at Loyola University of Chicago and the founder of the almost decade-long running Social Work Podcast. We met in person last summer at the Podcast Movement Convention. We had a mutual therapist podcasting friend in common. And when I learned that he was also an author and expert on suicide prevention, You know, he literally wrote the book on it for school professionals. And then I experienced the presence of his kind nature. I knew that if I was going to let anyone get me talking about Scott and the aftermath of his suicide, it would be Jonathan. For those interested in reading more, Jonathan's book is Suicide in Schools, A Practitioner's Guide to Multi-Level Prevention, Assessment, Intervention, and Postvention. The first part of the interview is educational. We cover the age ranges of kids most at risk for suicide, what parents and school personnel can do to help kids with suicidal thoughts, and when kids talk about wanting to kill themselves, it means something, and Jonathan helps dismantle how to discuss and reframe a child's use of those words. The second part of the interview is Jonathan interviewing me about my experience of having a brother who struggled with depression and suicidality for many years how his suicide affected myself and my family, and my personal grief process. Now, I listened to the playback of the interview before recording this intro this morning as we conducted this interview several months ago. And you know, it's a tough one. I think that's why I put it off for so long. But my hope is that for as much as talking publicly about my brother Scott and his suicide and the after effects are cathartic for me, I do hope that listening to this is helpful for those who are struggling with suicidal thoughts or have loved and lost someone to suicide. So we're gonna get into the interview now. Thanks so much for tuning in. All right, thanks Jonathan for being with me on the Coaching Through Chaos podcast. I'm so glad to be here, Colleen. It's it's, it's an honor and a pleasure. All right, so I met you at the Podcast Movement Conference and you've been hosting the Social Work Podcast for a long time, but your 
bulk of your work appears to be around studying suicide. Of course, the book that we've already talked about. Um, can you talk about how you got into studying suicide? Yeah. So when I was in high school, I was in the play Ordinary People. And uh, uh, folks of a certain age will will say, oh, yes, Ordinary People. That was that movie with Mary Tyler Moore and Donald Sutherland. And um, that's Kiefer Sutherland's dad, for those <laughs> of you who are not of a certain age. And it was a, you know, it was a story about a family where there was a, the oldest son died and then the younger son uh, was really grief stricken at his brother's death and um, and made a suicide attempt. And this this play was really um, it was really profound in the high school because it was a play about suicide risk. And, you know, the drama teacher did something that in retrospect, I think is amazing. And I also think she probably was required to, but she hired a mental health professional to come and talk with us as actors and then debrief after every performance. And it was the first time that I was really aware of suicide as an actual thing. And then I went and I got my MSW and I kind of had visions of what I was going to do. And uh, the only job that I could find was working at a mobile crisis unit doing suicide assessments with kids. And I learned that I just loved crisis work. And I also learned that this thing, you know, doing suicide assessments and managing suicide risk in youth, this thing that I would do day in and day out mm -hmm. that I felt really confident in doing, I quickly learned that a lot of professionals don't feel confident doing that. And so I realized that I had a little bit of expertise that I could share. Mm. That's so interesting. I have a similar background. My first job in the field was overnight on a suicide hotline. So it right. wasn't assessing kids. It was dealing with the phone calls that come in at night mm -hmm. by myself on a line, on a phone line. It's tough work, and it sounds like you have a real passion for it, of course, and now it is your uh, veritable expert in the field. So being that that's the case, can you talk about who is committing suicide among the school-age population? Because that is who your book is geared towards. It's for the school professionals. So yeah. can you talk about who is committing suicide these days? Is it younger kids, older kids? Sure transitional age? Well, let me just start out by uh, having a little note about language. Yes. One of the words that we used to use a lot was committing. In recent years, there's been a shift away from preferring to just use the phrase die by suicide as opposed to commit suicide. Uh, we think of people as committing murder, right? Or yes. committing rape or something like that. But yes. committing suicide, it lends an air of uh, somehow associating it with these things. And and the phrase die by suicide, mm -hmm. the emphasis is on the death, yes. which is really what it should be on. So most of the time, the kids that are dying by suicide are mid to late teens. Kids under the age of 10, luckily, rarely die by suicide. It's not something that you see if you look at the Centers for Disease Control. They have an online program that you can actually look up deaths, either at the national level or state level mm -hmm. and there are even some cities and it you know breaks it down by age group you're not going to find a lot of kids at maybe 14 under the age of 10 that died by suicide last year but the number jumps significantly once you start getting into the middle teen years and so we usually mm -hmm. talk about youth suicide risk as being 15 to 24 
Ah, uh, okay. Now, some of your listeners might be thinking, well, 24, that's young adult. And, and yes, it is It is young adult, but uh, research on neurobiology suggests that the brain continues to develop until about age 25. And so while you might have a big difference between a 15-year-old and a 24-year-old, in terms of brain development, there's still some processes that are the same. And so in terms of youth suicide risk, we oftentimes have that as the age group. Yeah, 15 to 24. And what are the risk factors that people should look for yeah. in that age? A lot of the risk factors for, for kids are the same as adults in the sense that if you've got kids that are struggling with depression, that's a huge risk factor. And um, just remember that in kids, depression oftentimes looks like irritability or anger. Mm. And so you might, you might have depression present differently, but uh, the same underlying mechanism. So you've got depression for your middle and uh, older adolescents, substance abuse. Right? Mm -hmm. Again, same thing as adults. There, there are some things that are a little different. You know, one of the big risk factors across the lifespan has been traditionally being sexual or gender uh, minority status, so LGBTQ. Now, if you're 55 and you've been out for 30 years and you've got a strong community, LGBTQ, you know, your sexual orientation isn't necessarily a risk factor for suicide, uh -huh. right? Um, right? If you're 15 and you're in the closet and you are worried that people are going to reject you, like your family, your friends, then it can be a risk factor Certainly. because of what it means to your social network. Yeah. And then also there's their own fear of how people will respond to them. But in general, too, whether it's that factor or just other social acceptance factors, I'm thinking, right, we hear stories, we we're just talking about one about cyberbullying. Mm -hmm. And is that something now that's listed as a risk factor if kids are being ostracized by other kids? Yeah. Anytime you have kids who feel rejected or are intentionally being um, abused used and, and bullying and cyberbullying are experiences where you have uh, a perpetrator who's intentionally targeted somebody and engaged in multiple intentional acts of violence against that other person. And so and this is something really important to remember. You know, the media jumps on certain formulas to get their job done. And I say this with full love and respect for journalists. They have a nearly impossible job, right? They show up first thing in the morning and they're told to go report on a change at the local bank. And the next day they show up and they're like, a kid died by suicide, go report on it, right? Mm -hmm. And so they have these formulas. And one of the formulas is bullying plus something else equals suicide. And that's way too simple, but bullying can be a risk factor. Oftentimes when you look at kids who have died by suicide following bullying or cyberbullying, they have these underlying risk factors of uh, an existing mental illness. Mm. Uh, sometimes they have uh, low support or high conflict at home. Mm -hmm. uh, they have poor support networks. There's some sort of something that's going on. Now, this is not all kids, but these are, you know, we're talking about risk factors. Sure, and these so, are factors that can contribute to right. a suicide act. So when you have bullying or cyberbullying, it can be one of those things that, you know, is the, the straw that breaks the camel's back kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we were just talking about under 10 years old, we're not really seeing much by way of suicide. 
But what should parents do though when their young kid, you know, when they're having their tantrum says, I just wish I were dead or I want to die. And they're very young, you know, eight years old. Yeah. Should a parent take that seriously? Yeah, absolutely. The parent should absolutely take it seriously. And you know, one of the things that I want to be very clear about is that I'm talking about suicide deaths mm-hmm. being relatively uncommon in younger kids, in children, mm-hmm. as opposed to adolescents. Yeah. But... I'm not talking about suicidal ideation or attempt. Now, when you have, um, I did a study several years ago with Karen Slovak from Ohio, and we, we asked school social workers how often they had worked with elementary school, middle school, and high school kids with suicidal ideation, attempt, plan, hospitalization, mm-hmm. um, death, that sort of thing. Well, 75% of elementary school social workers said that they had worked with an elementary school kid who had reported thoughts of suicide. Now, it doesn't mean that they, you know, that 75% of kids Mm -hmm. have suicidal ideation, but thoughts of suicide is something that is much more frequent than deaths. So if you're a parent, the thing to remember is that kids, after about the age of six or seven, they understand what suicide means. Like if they say, I'm gonna kill myself, yeah. They understand that that means I'm going to do something to end my life. Now, they don't have the context for understanding what that means mm-hmm. for others, but they, they oftentimes get that that means that they're not going to be around. And a lot of times parents don't think that that's true, right? They're like, well, they can't understand that, but... right. And that's why I wanted to know if they should take it seriously, because that's what I've worked with so many parents over the years. And people want to, I think it's out of fear, right? They want to minimize it and say, oh, but they were just upset, or it was just a tantrum, or they don't know what they're really saying. Right. And what you're saying is that they actually do. That's right. And 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 that they should take it seriously enough to address it. And what would they do with that? You know, so their young child says that maybe every time they get upset, It ends up with, I wish I were dead. Mm -hmm. What would you recommend a parent do with that information? Well, I would just say that, um, you know, if I was talking to the kid, and I'll just use my kid as an example. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wrote a book called Suicide in Schools. It came out when my kid was seven, maybe six. And I've got little kids. I got younger kids, so three. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the word suicide gets thrown around all the time in my house. And I remember my daughter, soon after the book came out, she's like, well, I'm just going to kill myself. And I was like... Hey, M. Her name's Emerson. I said, Emerson, let me talk to you about what that means. And so we sat down and I said, there's a big difference between saying that you want to be dead and saying that you are unhappy mm-hmm. and that you want you, you want something, right? I said, you can totally get my attention in lots of ways uh, without saying, I want to kill myself. And it's also not okay to say to your brothers, well, you should just go kill yourself, which is something else that has popped out of her mouth. And you know, acknowledging that she's trying that on and mm-hmm. she's playing with it and seeing what happens and saying, okay, so this is an opportunity to uh, reinforce there are other ways to get my attention or other ways to let me know that she's upset and needing something mm-hmm. and uh, ways to start what is actually a long, a long range conversation about what it means to be happy and mm-hmm. or if not happy, be satisfied, have a life that's worth living. Yeah. Um, and so we started those conversations and I suspect she's going to keep saying it in, you know, in a provoking way and fingers crossed that she never actually says it, um, because she's actually thinking about killing herself. But I know that about 12% of kids, you know, Mm -hmm. at some point in their life 
report having at least one serious thought of wanting to kill themselves. That's based on a national study by Matthew Nock and colleagues out of Harvard. Wow, that's uh, quite a bit. And right, but that kind of conversation, parents shouldn't shy away from to have that. And I think what Mm -hmm. a great way, whether it's about teaching her about how to get your attention. I was thinking about how to express her emotions effectively. Right. Yeah. That's exactly right. So what should a parent do besides talking to the child? So let's say that that conversation keeps coming around or they just, you know, they they get that the the kid is really distressed. Mm -hmm. What do you recommend that they do? Should they go to the school personnel? Do they go straight to a therapist? Do they go to a psychiatrist? What do you what's what do you recommend that a parent does? Well, they could go see a therapist. I mean, I'm a therapist. You're a therapist. Mm-hmm. We know lots of therapists, uh, and therapists can be good, but therapists can also be crappy, either by training or because they have a different agenda than the parent or the kid. And you know, suicidal ideation is short term. Right. Typically, especially for kids, it comes and it goes or sometimes it comes and then it leaves and it never comes back. Uh Now, the research suggests that for younger kids, even short duration of suicidal ideation of suicide thoughts Mm -hmm. can be pretty distressing. And in part, that's because it's not sort of developmentally appropriate for kids that are six, seven, eight, nine to be thinking about death. Sure. And I know that kids around the world in sort of extremely sort of chaotic and violent situations are confronted with death. So it's not that that doesn't happen, but it developmentally, it's much more appropriate um, for an adolescent whose brain is able to think about, it's not just me, it's others. I have future orientation. I can imagine my life in the future or maybe not my life, right? But that's not something that necessarily an eight-year-old is typically thinking about. So mm-hmm. So first of all, just remember for parents, you know, there's there's a short-term nature about it. And so if it's helpful to go to somebody who can have a conversation with their kid, especially with the parents about what it means to communicate what they need and actually get that, that's the best thing. Now, if there is long-term ongoing suicidal ideation and that happens, then it's totally appropriate to uh, meet with somebody. It doesn't have to be a therapist, but meet with somebody who's able to tap into you know, are there things that can that can make you happy, kid? Are there things that aren't going on in your life that if they were going on would uh, provide you with the kind of happiness and satisfaction that might keep these thoughts at bay? Mm-hmm. Now, there's always going to be a very small subset of kids for whom these thoughts just are hard to get rid of. Yeah. They might not be distressing all the time, but they're just kind of part of who they are. Mm-hmm. And I've spoken with a lot of these folks as adults who have said, Man, I mean, I remember being like nine and looking up and seeing the fan in my room and just wishing it would fall on me. Oh. And then, and then I would just be dead. And technically, that's what we call non-suicidal morbid ideation. Mm-hmm. Not thinking about killing themselves, but wishing they were dead. Yeah. But that's just a technicality that those of us in the field sort of go for. But, but if you have a kid and you're thinking, okay, so... In general, the kid is not really at the stage developmentally where thoughts of the future and death are kind of part of their makeup, but they keep talking about this and we've tried to figure things out, then it's totally appropriate to do a full workup. And that Mm -hmm. means going to see a therapist, going in to see your pediatrician or a psychiatrist, talking with the school counselors, talking with your community leaders that there might be involved in. And by that, I mean like sports coaches or uh, iman, priests, rabbis, whatever you have, Mm -hmm. and really get a 360 view of this kid. What is this kid like when he's on the soccer field, right? What's she like when she's in art class? 
you know, all of these yes. things so that so that you get a better take as a parent of how uh, other people see your kid so that you can have a better sense of what goes on. Right. I think probably to add on that too, the the reverse can happen, right? The child can make those statements in other settings and not at home. And for the parent to really listen to those professionals who are in contact with their kid, whether it's the sports coach or the teacher, to take that into consideration and not say, well, he doesn't do it at home. So it must be he's upset in the one class. Right. And, and really kind of get the full picture. So I like how you put talking just to someone for the short term, someone who can reach the child, whether it might be the sports coach or the teacher, even before getting to a therapist. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, in this talking about it being some uh, short term or transient kind of thinking, I had always remembered some kind of statistic where if someone had suicidal thoughts when they were uh, a kid or an attempt, I think it was when they were under 18, they were something like 86% more likely to have an attempt later on in life. But I remember that statistic from probably 20 years ago. So mm -hmm. I'm wondering, is that something that's still true that someone is is at risk um, if they've made an attempt uh, that, yeah, so, that later yeah. in life, it's something that, that would come back around and revisit them if they were in a distressed place again? Well, for, for everyone, the single most significant predictor for a future suicide attempt is a previous suicide attempt. Mm. And the extent to which that has lasting power, I think, is a little bit up for discussion. You know, because you could have somebody who made an attempt when they were 14 mm -hmm. and they just got surrounded by support and love and maybe the right medication. And it kind of set them up on a path where even if they had thoughts, the idea of trying to do something to end their life was never a possibility again, mm -hmm. right? They were like, yeah. I, would, I, I will never do that to people I love again. And so there's a good kind of counter example. So yes, prior attempt is a really big and important risk factor um, for future attempts. And so everybody should be aware of that when they do their assessments. Now, is that different than also um, suicidal thoughts? Is suicidal thoughts being sometimes transient, sometimes longer lasting. I know I don't work with a lot of teens anymore, but I did for for exclusively for probably seven or eight years. And mm -hmm. so many of them, like we even talked about suicidal thoughts as an escape fantasy. They were kids mm -hmm. that said in a million years, they would never do anything to hurt themselves. But mm -hmm. it always was, I could just disappear kind of thoughts, or I just right. don't want to have my life anymore. And mm -hmm. we, we then kind of rebuilt, okay, similar to what you were saying, what would make life better? How can we start implementing some of these things into your life? What kind of plan can we make for the future and kind of start building them back up from having these thoughts that the thoughts were then, you know, extinguished, at least for that time period. Why is it that some people have that? And is that something that you as the expert in suicidality, is that accurate that it could just be an escape fantasy? as some way of comforting themselves when they feel really distressed, even though they know they would never do anything, is that something that people turn to? I wouldn't say that intense suicidal ideation is, is an escape. I think I would consider that more the non-suicidal morbid ideation. Like, ah. I just sometimes I'm like, oh man, if this house collapsed or... You know, if I were on the street and a bus hit me or, mm -hmm. you know, like anything that sort of where you would die. Yeah. Right. Sometimes that can be kind of an escape fantasy. And that's what I'm really talking about. Those yeah. kind of thoughts. They were never really had an intent behind the thought. It was if something happened to me, it would be all right. Yeah. And that's why I think it's important to distinguish if something happened to me from 
if or when I do something to myself, because those are really different. And I think that there, there are kids for whom their life circumstances are so horrible that they want to do anything to escape, but they don't necessarily want to die and they certainly don't want to kill themselves. But sometimes those escape fantasies are really appropriate coping, especially if there's abuse either inside or outside the home, you know, those sorts of things. But I would not say that kids who voice thoughts of suicide uh, should be seen as engaging in an escape fantasy. And I think that, you know, there's this myth that parents have or that adults have, which is that sometimes when kids say that they want to kill themselves, they're just doing it to seek attention. Mm -hmm. And the myth part is that this is not serious. The truth is that they do want attention. And my question for the adults is, what is going on in their life that's so terrible that they need to say, I'm going to end my life before somebody pays attention to them? And so, yeah, so pay attention to them, figure out what it is that they want. And if you don't, then a kid who never really had an intention might escalate in order to get what they want, even if they don't actually want to kill themselves. Mm -hmm. Now, when we look at prevention of suicide, what have they found about prevention programs? Do they they work? And are schools right now uh, mandated to have programs implemented? Yeah, there's no mandate to have prevention programs in schools. There are some states that have passed variations of what's called the Jason Flat Act, F-L-A-T-T. And that is legislation that requires uh, school professionals, sometimes it's teachers, sometimes it's all school professionals, to have education around suicide risk. And that's new in the last you know, maybe five, 10 years. There are uh, some schools, there's some states and some, you know, definitely districts that have ongoing suicide prevention programs. Mm -hmm. But what I want to say about suicide prevention programs is that uh, suicide prevention, there's not just one, right? So if you're in a school and they say, oh, let's do a gatekeeper training, that's great. And in fact, there was a study that came out in, um, I think it was 2015 by Christine Mulreff and colleagues uh, that looked at gatekeeper training programs. And a gatekeeper training program is one where adults are trained to uh, identify kids at risk and then provide referrals mm-hmm. um, to them. And uh, and there, there are a bunch of different versions. But, but the study found that in counties where they had gatekeeper training, when compared to counties without gatekeeper training, suicide deaths actually dropped. So this is one of the few studies that has ever found that, in fact, gatekeeper training as a suicide, school-based suicide prevention program um, was successful in reducing suicide deaths. Mm-hmm. And that also, they, another comparison they used was, did deaths for adults decline in that same period, and they did not. And so it's pretty... Uh, so it's pretty clear that it had something to do with the training or the did. program. Yeah. And when the training ended, suicide deaths went back up. So it's pretty compelling research. So gatekeeper training is one thing, but there's also something called universal screening. Mm -hmm. And universal screening is, it's like panning for gold. You go into a school with 3000 kids in four grades and the, you know, there are five guidance counselors for 3000 kids and, and there's no way that they're going to get to know all of these kids. The teachers don't talk to each other. 
the parents don't know because they're dropping kids off and mm -hmm. kids have after school activities and blah, blah, blah. And so how do you identify kids at risk? Well, one way is that you do a screening form. You ask them questions, um, usually in a survey kind of method. And then the kids that answer yes to questions like in the last couple of weeks, I've thought about, I've had serious thoughts of ending my life. Those are kids that are the little nuggets of gold. So out of 3,000 kids, you might have, you know, if we look at the statistics for mm -hmm. high school, it's about um, 15 to 17%. Oh, in a given year report having at least one serious thought of suicide. That's through the Youth Risk Behavior Survey through the CDC. So, you know, so if we're talking about 17% of 3,000 kids, I actually have no idea what that is, but yeah. you know, let's say a couple hundred kids. Right. At that point, what you would want to do is you would want to then refer them to something. Now, universal screening is a great idea. In fact, it should happen everywhere. It should happen everywhere. One of the reasons why it doesn't is because schools are required to establish a referral base uh -huh. before screening, right? If you have 300 kids. Where are you going to send them? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that pop up in need. Like, what are you going to do with them? Yeah. Um, and so for all of your listeners that are mental health professionals, if you have expertise in suicide risk, call your local schools. Call your local high school and say, uh, you know, I'm not promoting my services, you know, in private practice, but I do want to let you know that I have this expertise. And if you need, if you want to talk more, I can be part of a referral list that you guys have in case you do some sort of suicide prevention activity, uh, a workshop, some sort of programming, and there's somebody that you need to refer out. You can have my, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's a great tip. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> most schools, they don't, you know, the school social worker, or the school psychologist, whatever, like they don't have time to sit, you know, through the phone book and be like, right. okay, I'm going to go with A, like Adams, Stacy Adams. Hello, Stacy. Right. Who works with teens, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, you don't know. So, anyway, so suicide prevention programs, there is some research to suggest that it does work. Mm -hmm. Having one program does not a, a comprehensive suicide prevention program make. Yeah. And also it requires coordinating with communities. You can't do successful suicide prevention in the schools unless you're thinking about successful suicide prevention out in the community. Right. As with so many things, it takes a team mm -hmm. of support to make the whole venture successful. Yeah. And, and I'll just say that in our book, Suicide in Schools, one of the things that we really talked about was that school professionals, particularly mental health professionals, they have access to the kind of information that outpatient community mental health therapists would love to have. What's it like for this kid on a daily basis? Mm -hmm. When this kid is sitting in class, right? Not when they're in their, some, some therapist's office, you know, with special one-on-one -on -one time and, you know, it's sort of like the Johnny show for an hour. Like, what is this kid like? Mm -hmm. And uh, now, like I said, most school mental health professionals don't have the time to get to know the kids. And so we created what we call the suicide risk monitoring form. Oh. And this is a form that can be self-report or it can be administered by the school counselor, social worker, psychologist. And you would give it to a kid who's already at known risk for suicide. You'd give it to them every single time you see them. And then we've set it up so that you can track the scores. And so if you're a school mental health professional and you're not doing the therapy, right? you're not accompanying the kid to the medication appointments, you can still get incredible information and pass that along. 
and so that you have <laughs> you have these teams working together. Yeah, it's so important. And when I was doing some research for this interview on you, I saw something about a zero suicide initiative. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So the zero suicide initiative is something that really developed out of um, David Covington and Mike Hogan are two folks who are very passionate about suicide prevention. And they are taking an organizational perspective, specifically for healthcare systems. So like hospitals, nursing homes, those sorts of things. What can organizations do to make suicide a never event? Mm. Now, part of that is changing the way that individual providers are trained, right? What they know and what do they think and what do they believe and what their attitudes are around suicide risk. If I'm a provider in a healthcare setting and I think, yeah, I totally am going to do whatever I can for this person. But honestly, at the end of the day, like he'll kill himself if he wants to. That's very different than suicide is preventable at all points, mm -hmm. right, in a person's life. And so I might do things differently if I think of suicide as being uh, something that should be a never event. And then the other side is how do organizations support clinicians to provide the kind of care, you know, assessment, intervention, management that might be required for suicide to be a never event. And so this initiative is going on, and there's a lot of details, and I actually interviewed David Covington for my podcast, um, and you can hear him talk at length about zero suicide there. And we'll put a link to that episode in the show notes for this episode. Yeah, no, that's great. But I think you know one of the things to, 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 to take out of this, regardless of what setting you're in, is that for the first time in history, there is a movement that is saying – how can we think about suicide as something that doesn't have to happen ever? Mm -hmm. And that's very different. And you can, you can generalize that to a lot of things, right? I mean, you know, these days we have people are like, yeah, I can see a day when no one will die of breast cancer, right? It might take Herculean efforts. It might take more money than we've got right now. It might take, you know, mm -hmm. but people can imagine that when my grandmother died after having cancer, Nobody would have thought that. I mean, nobody even mentioned the word, right? And so it's just a it's just a shift. It's the same thing with domestic violence, mm -hmm. right? We don't have a movement in this country that says domestic violence should be a never event. I mean, yeah, you ask most people and they're like, yeah, so like guys shouldn't beat their wives and blah, blah, blah. Right, but we assume it's going to continue to go on. Yeah. yeah. And people are like, uh, yeah, you know, and they make excuses. They're like, oh, I don't know, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. And mm -hmm. I'm being very gendered about this in my discussion kind of stereotypically just mm -hmm. to point out that this is kind of a ridiculous position to have, which is to say domestic violence is inevitable. Interpersonal violence is inevitable. It's like, wait, why? Yeah. So zero suicide is specifically for healthcare settings, in part because you can't have a suicide prevention initiative that will tackle every single setting. Just like you can't say, we're now going to go for zero interpersonal violence. You have to say within this setting where mm -hmm. we can have some control over what's done and, and things like that, our goal is zero interpersonal violence. Yeah. Wow. Well, personally, hearing about that and thinking about zero suicide is tough. And hearing that it can and should be preventable 
is is really tough. Um, I mentioned in other episodes and in the intro to this one that, you know, I have a personal connection to my own brother's suicide uh, in 2007. Yeah. And I learned a long time ago that we should be talking to someone who is distressed over thoughts of killing themselves um, because I was doing it firsthand long before I ever entered a graduate class on psychology. So thinking about that, you know, because as a, as a survivor of sibling suicide, it really changes things for people. And, you know, I think people get scared to talk about suicide and, and talk about asking someone who's depressed or always irritable, as you mentioned, when they're younger, it might look like in a teenage boy it might look like high irritability, social withdrawal, things like yeah. that to ask them. And then to really take it seriously that those thoughts are real. So thinking about zero suicide is a, a different way of thinking. So when you hear me talk about suicide is something that doesn't have to happen, mm -hmm. how does that make you feel about the fact that your brother actually died by suicide? Guilty. It makes me feel remorseful. I was very involved with his suicide attempts through the years, so much so across the country. There were one day there was a seven hour phone call and trying to prevent him from doing what he was telling me he was going to do to himself that ended with calling the police across the country after I knew where he was. And they picked him up and took him to the hospital. And the day before he actually did it and died by suicide. It's funny you say that. I always say he died from depression. Mm. I, I don't, somehow I don't say suicide. I say he died from depression. Is it easier to to think about him dying from depression than suicide? I think I do it for other people. Mm, like to protect them? Right. When I say, oh, I have, a, you know, I have three brothers, but one of them passed is what mm. I, you know, because I say, oh, do you have siblings? Yeah. So I have a sister and three brothers, but one of them died a while ago. Oh, what happened? Oh, he died of depression. They get it. But I think I say it so I don't have to go into mm. suicide is such this word that I think, I, I, well, I say I'm doing it for other people. I'm probably doing it for myself now that I'm saying it. <laughs> Like the day before he did it, he called me and left me a voicemail that was so nonchalant. It was, hey, Kyle, I'm calling to see how you're doing. Everything's fine here. And the next day he was dead. Mm. And it was one of these things where, um, and I have guilt. I actually thought at that time, because he was in between, he hadn't been actively suicidal in a while, but he always was, I had to do a lot of caretaking with him. And he always turned to me for that. And I remember thinking, oh, I'll call him back. I'll call Scott back in a couple of days. And I didn't have a couple of days. And mm. he was just gone. So when you say that there's always something that can be done, I think, then I get mad and I go, well, how dare you say that? Like, we've all done everything we can. You know, what could right. we do? I, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't know because he left us out of that plan. He, he included me in most of the plans throughout his 20s, but left me out of that final one. So a couple things. First of all, I like my heart breaks for you because mm. it's it's clear that you love your brother a lot mm. and that and that you were there for him at his most pained moments. And I'm not surprised that you feel some guilt and some anger about sort of the last conversation and also this implication that, mm. that, well, maybe you could have done more. Yeah. And I, you know, and I want to say that zero suicide, 
and this idea that suicide should be a never event, mm -hmm. that this is, this is a message for organizations and professionals. And it points to one of the big kind of two sides of the coin things in suicide prevention. On one hand, we put people at risk as providers when we think, well, maybe this person will die and there's nothing I can do, mm. right? Mm -hmm. there's, there's at some point where I'm off the hook. You, you wouldn't want to refer your brother. No, to someone who thought that way. To a provider who was like, yeah, I'm here for you, man. I mean, up to a certain point. <laughs> Right. right. So that's so there's that. But then the flip side is that when somebody dies by suicide, we feel so guilty. Mm -hmm. And there's the question of why and what could I have done differently that it's actually not healthy for us to say, yeah, that's terrible. And you probably could have done something differently. Like that's just a horrible response. And, and so we don't actually respond that way in the suicide prevention community. So talking to providers mm -hmm. proactively, we say suicide should be a never event. And when we talk to survivors of suicide loss, then we comfort their grief. And we, we honestly say, you know, you did everything you could. Mm -hmm. And so there are those two sides. How can those both be true? Well, I, you know, they just are. Yeah. And, you know, with your brother, long time uh, suicide risk. And, uh, it sounds like he had more than one attempt. Yes. And those ongoing thoughts, there's nobody that can be expected to manage that alone. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you had some, some pretty, uh, pretty good interventions as an individual to, to rope other people in, but adults for parents, anybody who's listening to this, Never think that you should be able to do this by yourself. The professionals don't do it by themselves. Mm -hmm. You could be an attending psychiatrist with 50 years of experience and you are not expected to do a suicide assessment or manage suicide risk by yourself. Mm -hmm. And thank you for saying that. It was something. And when you mentioned that some people's thoughts are transient and some are longer lasting, I know of one period of time in his life where we don't think that there was any kind of suicidal mm -hmm. behaviors or actions. He seemed to kind of level out and, and have be okay with his life. But from the time he was about 15 and then he finally died at, at 28, it was pretty constant worry over him. And, uh, you know, and there were times, I mean, he, I believe that he had a diagnosis of bipolar, but he really just didn't like what he perceived as a stigma and saw it as a weakness and would only take medication for a short period of time. So there was that thing where you go, okay, well, I can keep holding your hand and bringing you to help or getting Great. you help against your will. Cause he was so mad at me for getting him hospitalized at that one, at, at least that one time. But then I know he called me another time straight out of the hospital and said, you got to get me out of here. Can you get me to California? And I f flew him out from New York to California the next day. And he lived with me for about six or seven weeks after a hospital stay. And I remember wow. just being so scared going, oh, my gosh, what have I done? What if he what if he kills himself on my couch? How yeah. will I tell my parents? How, mm -hmm. will, how will I live with that? And uh, so I pretty much lived under high anxiety. I dropped him out of my house every day. And uh, here in San Diego, I had him go do something outside, made sure that he was going to the doctor, checked him do taking meds like I would if he was my, you know, inpatient patient. Mm -hmm. And it was a, he understood why I was doing it. Yeah. But it was more stress than I realized it was going to be until he got here. 
but on some level, I'm glad he did it. I mean, it it was safe for him. Um, but then there was something compelling him to go back to his life in New York and just to deal with it. And, you know, he saw it as so many people do as there's something wrong with me. I need to be able to deal with my life. And he thought he should just be able to suck it up and, and put on a good face and make it all better. Yeah. And without any help. And what I'd like people to understand is like, you got to get help. There's somebody who, whether it's a full-on therapist or, as you mentioned, somebody you connect with, an adult in your life that you connect with, someone can can reach you and show you something different. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that you know you you have some really great training, and I'm sure he he benefited from from that. And you know, I think most people don't even have what you have, sure. right? In terms of, I don't know where you were in your career when all this was going on, but. You know, I mean, most people don't have training in crisis hotline. Yeah. Right? <laughs> no, I, I had already had that training yeah. by the time I was really involved with his struggle. I was significantly older than him. I was eight years older. So I was already into my 30s and working as a therapist when I really became aware of how bad his struggle was. Yeah. And he was in his yeah. mid-20s. Yeah. So, you know, I think that, you know, one of the take-home messages for folks from your story is that it is important to step up mm-hmm. when you can and and where you can and doing things like, you know, you had your brother stay with you. I've had parents when their kids are in really intense suicidal crises, they have their 17-year-old kid sleep on the floor in their bedroom, mm. right? And most parents are not going to be like, oh, well, of course I'll have my 17-year-old sleep on the floor. Like that, you just don't even think about that. But there is a there's a way in which you you wrap yourself around the person that is at serious risk and um, and you just hold them like yeah. sometimes physically but uh, socially and emotionally to make sure that they know that they are loved, cared for, and supported. Because when you're in a suicidal crisis, uh, you really most people tend to feel like they're a real burden on others mm-hmm. that there's not that sort of love and support for them, yeah. and that they feel like they would be doing everybody else. Uh, a benefit or a service if they ended their life. And and so you really need to make sure they know that is not, that is absolutely not true. And it is in fact the opposite, yes. that it would just be devastating for you. Yes. Uh, if, if that happened. And in fact, it, it, it was, and it is, and my family has never been the same again. It changed everybody, of course. How did, how did, how did, how did your family react to that? You know, we were never really the closest, but my siblings were pretty close. Mm -hmm. We all have different kind of fractures in our relationships since that time happened. My two brothers, I don't think they even can speak about him. Mm. One of them has had some difficulties over time kind of managing his own emotions. And the other one has just, I don't think we've ever said his name since then. Mm. It made us scared for for each other. I remember having a little session. It was we all (laughs) gathered um, for my father's last birthday. My father passed away about a year and a half later. And we all think it was like he'd gotten very sick very fast. Mm. But we also think that he just never really recovered from from the loss of Scott. And and he died quickly. And I remember I think it was at his last birthday party right after Scott passed that we all kind of checked in with each other to make sure that we were all kind of okay. But, you know, we don't really have a lot of conversation about him. Sounds like it was just so devastating for everybody that the words aren't there, the context, like, how do you even come back from that? 
Right. And like, I'm one of these people where I want to talk about him. I was very, very close with him. I have his mm-hmm. picture up in my in my place and, and keep him around. Um, I even have a little, uh, well, a big tattoo to memorialize him. It's, it, nobody mm-hmm. knows what it is. It doesn't signify my brother, but it has the date of his death in there. Mm. And uh, it just reminds me that you can't take any any day for granted. You don't know that the people that you love are not going to be there tomorrow. Yeah. And and even if they're fine one day, whether it's a suicide or a car accident, they could be gone. So you need to appreciate that and, and express those things. If I had it to do over, even if I called Scott on that day, I know I most likely would not have prevented anything from happening the next day if I'd called him back. Mm-hmm. You know, that much I know from my training that and that's mm-hmm. helped me to understand that no matter what his his mind had been made up at that point, mm-hmm. at least on this personal level. Professionally, mm-hmm. I might say something different if this was a I, I, I might have thought that there was more to do. Mm-hmm. You're integrating that zero suicide philosophy pretty quickly there. I like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. And um, well, I, I, I've had that professionally. I always think there's another way to help someone. Yeah, yeah. Surviving it is something else. Surviving somebody else's that you love is something else. And uh, because I was so close to it, I had to find ways to forgive myself for not calling him back and mm-hmm. understand that one phone call from me was I was not that powerful in his life, you know, ultimately. Like, right. I, I don't have that much power to save somebody's life on my own like that. Right, right. So that's helped. But yeah, the, the relationships are different. Everybody grieves differently. And that's what I learned a lot. Everybody grieves differently, and it's it's changed changed my perspective. Mm-hmm. I did have to tailor my professional work a bit for a while. Today, I'm at the point where if somebody comes in and I know that they have depression with suicide in their history, I'm okay and I can I can take them on. But but for years, like this was in 2007, I'd say it was only in the last maybe year that I've become okay with that. I just was scared of it. I didn't want it near me. So of course, I had mm-hmm. clients that were depressed, and at times they would get suicidal or have suicidal thoughts, and and that was okay. But if they presented that way in the initial screening call, mm-hmm. I would refer out. It mm-hmm. was something I didn't want to invite in because I yeah. knew I was too close to it. And I was fortunate enough that when he died, I was actually on a little hiatus between my last job and starting my private practice. And I had planned to take this like two months off over the summer. And mm-hmm. and he died July 1st. So I didn't have to work because the last thing I wanted to do was be a therapist at that time. I was like, <laughs> I don't want to deal with anybody else's problems because yeah. I've got enough. Right, of course. So things happened that I think allowed me to deal with it on my own terms and in my own way, where I didn't have to be interfered with my day job of just being there for everybody else, Mm -hmm. which was really a tough thing to think about at that time. Because then, of course, you know, I'm the caretaker in the family is just kind of my role as, as the big sister. And and I felt like I needed to be there for the rest of my siblings. And I've got a sister yeah. with special needs. So emotionally, it was to kind of really hold her up. And um, and of course, my mother and my father had lost them. And I was the one who had to tell my father. And mm. it was just a horrific experience. 
on a side note, I mean, like it wasn't just my family. I have very good friends, this couple that I was with when I got the news. And to mm. this day, the husband, he like we were going to go to we were at a certain beach and we're going to go to a certain restaurant after. And when I whenever I mention that I go I go to that restaurant, he'll say, I don't know how you can do that. Every time I think of that restaurant, I associate it with that phone call. And I'm just, and you know, so he's had his own reaction and he was, not, he was like a byproduct of my, my trauma because they watched me become traumatized. Like I was, yeah. I was in trauma in that moment because no matter how much you know that someone is struggling and you know that it's a morbid, morbid thing, but we all kind of knew someday we might get that call that just mm -hmm. said he was gone mm -hmm. and you get it and you still don't think it's real. Yeah. It was, uh, you say devastating. It was beyond. Beyond devastating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that this is, this is an important take home for, you know, folks listening, which is this idea that, you know, one of the things that folks who are suicidal don't get is how devastating this will be mm -hmm. for everybody that's left behind. Julie Serrell from uh, University of Kentucky did some really great research looking at how many people are affected by a suicide death. And for a long time, the number was six, right? Six people are, are, mm. are affected. Um, but she has a hashtag. You can go on to hashtag not six on oh. Twitter and find posts about this because what she found is that it, it's, it's more like somewhere between 25 and 115 or 120 oh, absolutely. Um, are really affected. And, and, and in all the ways that you've talked about, mm -hmm. Right, sort of the uh, awkwardness with family members. Yeah, your dad, who, mm -hmm. you know, maybe maybe it's too simplistic to say he died of a broken heart, but it. I was just going to say the same thing. I tell my one of my brothers and I have talked about it. He's just yeah. died of a broken heart. Which I'm yeah. sure your brother never would have wanted, if you had said, "Dad's, yeah. I don't think Dad could survive this." No. You know, I don't think he would have been like good. No, no. In fact, it would have tore him up and and yeah. and said, "No, no, this is going to relieve him, right?" Because that's his right. thinking was that the, he yep. was the burden. Yeah. When you say that about how many people, I mean, this was a a young guy who didn't feel like anybody cared about him, and mm -hmm. yet his services, I mean, were just there were people that just, I mean, besides myself who couldn't stop crying, there were there were people that came out of the woodwork that just loved him so much. And in fact, now through social media and stuff, um, one of his best friends, a, a young girl, well, she's now 30 something, I suppose, um, <laughs> reached out to me recently and we've connected over yeah. her closeness to my brother. And one yeah. of his best friends is a teenager. We're also connected on social media. And I learned so much about my brother that I didn't know creative wise and things that he was into after he passed from this, this guy. But this, this young girl reached out to me and said, well, I know, you know, Scott thought so much of you and here's the yeah. situation I'm dealing with. And I'm wondering if you can help me. And it wasn't suicidal, but it was yeah. dealing with someone else who was in her life. Yeah. And we've kind of, you know, peripherally bonded over that, although I've never met her except at the funeral um, years ago. So, but it, it does, it affects so many people. And if he even knew in a million years how loved he was, it, it yeah. would have made a difference. And, but he just, some people just can't see it. They're so lost. We always said he was like a tortured soul. And mm -hmm. I think some people just kind of feel that. And he, he felt everything, every pain in the world, he felt tremendously deeply. Mm. And so he was very sensitive. And uh, 
And it was a beautiful thing about him, but it was also at the sacrifice of his own ability to care for himself. Yeah, so many people were affected. I, I feel sadness about your brother's death. I didn't even know him, and I can tell that this has been powerful for you. And I just, you know, for somebody in suicide prevention, I think it's powerful that you're willing to share this story. And so on behalf of everybody who's listening, mm. who's saying, wow, that kind of speaks to me. I want to say thank you for that. Well, thank you. And I, I uh, it's taken a while to get here to be able to talk about it. I'm not sure quite how my siblings are going to react, but, but, I, <laughs> but I, felt, I felt it would be powerful to talk about. I felt that it could do somebody some good if they're listening. And, and before, I guess, we wrap up a bit, the one thing that I used to say after would be that I kind of fluffed around in my 20s. I didn't quite have a sense of direction in my life. And I didn't even go back to undergrad until I was 28, started graduate school at 30. And my life changed the minute I kind of did some things that were in my own benefit and looked after the life that I wanted to have. And it was the best thing I've ever done. And my life has flourished. And I feel very, very fortunate for the people in my life, the success, everything. And Scott died at 28, and that was the age yeah. where everything changed for me. And I used to say, gosh, I wish I could tell him, like, just stick around. You never know what's going to change in the world, you know, mm -hmm. what can change. Things might be devastatingly hard to deal with today, but tomorrow is a different day. And I used to think, if he only knew. And so mm -hmm. for those that are listening, if there's anybody this is connecting with, you don't know what tomorrow holds. And there's there's different options out there for you. Well, and I saw something on Facebook and somebody was like, you know, uh, your reason for living might not yet be in your life. Mm, exactly. You know, and it was this beautiful picture of this guy with his little kid. And, you know, I know kids aren't for everybody. Mm -hmm. And I also know that having a kid doesn't mean that you won't kill yourself. My co-author for the book, Terry Erbacher, like her dad died by suicide. Oh. You know, so we know that parents do kill themselves. So I'm yes. not holding that up as a solution. But I do think that when we say that one of the best ways to prevent suicide is to help people find reasons for living and to build lives worth living, that we have to remember that, just like you were saying, that those reasons might not be here yet mm -hmm. and to stick around until they show up. Yeah. Well, I think that this is a good place for us to leave off here. Or I'm going to start feeling like I'm in therapy. <laughs> so thank you so much, Jonathan Singer, for being with me on the Coaching Through Chaos podcast. We're going to have links to so many helpful things that you talked about in the interview between the hashtag not six and the zero suicide protocol and the Jason Flat Act and gatekeeper training <laughs> and the episode with the zero suicide people. We'll have links to all that in the show notes. So thank you so much, Jonathan. This has been, I'd say a pleasure, but that sounds weird after what we were just talking about. It, I get it though. I, I appreciate having someone like yourself be the person that helped me talk about this on the air. So well, thank you so much. Uh, it's truly an honor and a pleasure. I, and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with your folks and your listeners and also the opportunity to talk with you about your experience. It's really humbling. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me on this very personal episode. We will have all the links to the references Jonathan mentioned in the blog post that accompanies this episode over at coachingthroughchaos.com. I'd also like to mention the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline for resources or 24-hour support for those struggling with suicidality. 
That number is 1-800-273-8255. Okay, I'm Dr. Colleen Mullen signing off. If you've got chaos in your life, I hope you're finding your way through it. Take care.